All right, welcome to the AC Gleason podcast. I have uh, Mark Hemingway on today. Mark, you are a journalist with Real Clear Politics these days. That is correct. And um, does your family, do you guys talk about anything besides like the Russiagate hoax? <laughs> um, yeah, um, for those of you in the, maybe sort of tuning into this, my wife is Molly Hemingway, uh, the the journalist as well. Um, you know, and obviously between the two of us, we've done a lot of writing and reporting on this sort of exact issue. Um, now it's what's, what's also true is that it was kind of the dominant news story of the Trump era. Right. Right. Um, yeah. What is, so it's not unusual, I guess that two journalists in DC would have written a lot about this. What I guess is unusual is that, you know, we were on the opposite side of, you know, 99 plus percent of the press in that from the very beginning, my wife and I were both heavily questioning the narrative. And oh, by the way, we were like right across the board about all the stuff that was happening in terms of, you know, the media, you know, badly botching the story and otherwise jumping the gun on this, you know, Trump being the Manchurian candidate or whatever nonsense they were pushing for years. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was a pretty bizarre, uh, four-year cycle that you know when all of a sudden the shoe was on the other foot with accusations coming from biden's election you know it was like the worst thing you could possibly do to have any kind of uh questions about whether or not the election was legit um so what what did what did the I know Molly doesn't want to call it mainstream media anymore. She wants to call it regime media, which I makes no, sense to me. Corporate media is fine. Okay. So what did the corporate media, what was actually true in the corporate narrative? Like what was, what was sort of the basic. You mean on Trump Russia collusion? Yeah. Was any of it true? I mean, cause wasn't there virtually nothing? No. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I, it's, it's like, <laughs> In order to go through this, I mean, you'd have to sort of unpack everything sort of blow by blow, which is what, so I guess what occasions this conversation is that um, I recently wrote a, a column uh, about sort of the fallout from Russiagate, and that was pegged to the fact that there's this guy, Jeff Girth. Girth is a former investigative reporter for the New York Times, and um, he just wrote a 24,000-word, four-part piece and so it's like massive, um, basically laying out the Russiagate story and showing mm-hmm. um, in sort of very sober, sort of non-politicized detail about how like all, of, you know, it was really focused on the journalism of it, mm-hmm. um, about how every step of the way, all the big major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, I mean, these people won Pulitzers for their coverage. And they won Pulitzers for coverage that turned out to be like, you know, just wrong on the merits based on faulty assumptions, you know, based on dubious decisions, based on, you know, being, you know, insanely trusting of, you know, law enforcement agencies that have traditionally undermined the press and, and other things. Um, and so that got a, some people talking, I should say. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's still like too much for these people to admit um, sort of what's going on. Um so in answer to your question, I mean, like I could, you know, go, you know, it would take quite a while to unpack like every little step along the way. Like basically, you know, um, you know, there were these reports that Trump campaign advisors, um, you know, people on the fringes of the Trump campaign, frankly, um, had been, you know, talking to Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was spun out into like this steady drip, drip, drip 
of leaks. And then there was the issue of the Steele dossier where an ex-British, mm-hmm. you know, uh, MI6 agent named Christopher Steele put together this dossier that he was paid for um, by the, turns out, the Democratic National Committee, although they tried to hide the origin of the report for as long as they possibly could, um, put out a bunch of like half-truths and like bad information Right. Um, I mean, you know, alleging, you know, Trump had all these details, you know, had all these detailed ties to Russia, including that, like, Trump was compromised because he'd had, you know, uh, tryst with prostitutes that were filmed, um, you know, in Moscow and, and all that stuff, the, the famous peeing on Trump by you know, hookers. Well, and I remember uh, when it came out that the Steele dossier had been, quote unquote, confirmed in, you know, corporate media, that it was things like he happened to be in Moscow, like at a certain time. But there was yeah. no evidence beyond that. So a lot of this, you know, is stuff like, you know, one of the people that was, you know, advising Trump's campaign was a guy named Carter Page who had, you know, done business in Russia. I mean, it's not a crime to do business in Russia, you know. Yeah. Um, and so they were, you know, taking these sort of, you know, otherwise innocent connections and trying to spin them into something quite sinister. And then there was a lot of stuff that, I mean, they just straight up made up. I mean, there was this story about um, a, a server in Trump Tower that was communicating with this Russian bank. Um, that uh, Franklin Four, um, former editor of the New Republic, who resigned in disgrace after you know in, after um, the New Republic published this you know bunch of reporting that turned out not to be true about the Iraq War. Um, mm. You know he published this in Slate Magazine, and Hillary Clinton was all in on it. That got quickly debunked. Um, you know there were all these pieces of it, and what was crazy about it was is you know again this was a story that was being driven by you know leaks from law anonymous leaks from law enforcement agencies. Um, this shady, you know, Washington opposition research firm called Fusion GPS, um, ex-British spooks, um, Democratic lawyers. I'm like, everybody involved in pushing the story should have, you know, just set off klaxons in newsrooms in terms of, you know, whether or not these people were trustworthy. Um, mm-hmm. And at no point was there any sort of like, hey, sh- you know, sh- we really need to vet this or confirm this with second sources like that just wasn't happening. It was just like all of a sudden, like, you know, any normal, um, you know, impulses you would have or even just basic ethics um, were just completely disregarded. And like, you know, everyone in Washington became, you know, sort of stenographers for a bunch of, you know, um, really dubious sources, you know, Democratic partisans, you know, uh, deep state actors, whatever it was. Mm. Um, And, you know, uh, the thing about this, that's like really frustrating. And I sort of write about this is that, okay, fine. You know, I get it. Trump is a very unorthodox guy. It is yeah. crazy that Donald Trump has become president of the United States. Everybody's freaking out about it. You know, I get it. But at some point, you know, whether or not you believed Trump was the kind of person that would, you know, collaborate with Moscow, you know, to get elected, um, went from being, you know, a political Rorschach test to being an IQ exam. Because yeah. there were so many facts right at the beginning of this that were so obviously faulty um and no one bothered to you know follow up on these things um the example i use in my column is um there was a big scandal involving um michael flynn trump's Uh short-lived national security advisor um and um what happened was is that um he you know got right you know Right before, right as he was about to, right, right, yeah, I think it was even before Trump was even inaugurated in January of 2017. The FBI show up at his house unannounced. They violate FBI protocol. They're supposed to inform the White House lawyers anytime they're interviewing um, uh, a member of the administration with, 
you know, the, for a potential crime, you know, all this other stuff. So, you know, Flynn lets these F2 FBI agents into his house and, you know, because he thinks he's having a friendly chat with these guys. It turns out they're trying to trip him up. Next thing you know, Flynn is being charged with lying to the FBI, which, by the way, the crime of lying to the FBI. I mean, I have personally talked to, you know, multiple FBI agents that have like, you know, 20, 30 years of experience in the FBI. And you know how many times they've like been able to get, you know, prosecutors to go along with lying to the FBI because it's such like an insane charge. Um, and difficult to prove. I mean, it's like, it's just like they were clearly out to get Michael Flynn. Uh, um, and, but what was interesting about this is like all the initial reporting was as well. The FBI was investigating Michael Flynn because he may have violated the Logan act. Mm, I mean, all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> so I don't know, you know, I should probably explain that the Logan act is kind of to, to national security law. What, um, you know, phrenology is the medical science. Um, basically, <laughs> through an accident of history, there's a 1799 law that says it's illegal for private citizens to to engage in foreign policy on behalf of the U.S. government. Okay. Yeah. Now, it, this this law is this total accident of history. It's still in the books. Constitutional scholars all laugh at it and agree it's totally unconstitutional. It's regularly violated in terms of you know how do you even define what it would mean for private security private citizen to be conducting you know national security. I'm mean, yeah. sorry, um, foreign policy, you know, with a, um, um, you know, on behalf of the United States. Never mind that at the, a lot of the stuff they were accusing of Flynn of doing that was improper was him acting as Trump's incoming national security advisor and, and doing things like talking to Russians. Like this mm -hmm. is like, you know, within the expected realm of, of, you know, ordinary contact for, you know, ordinary contact for a, you know, political actor. So um, the whole thing was like just absolutely insane. And like, m like, you know, Foreign policy, the Washington Post, like all these publications were reporting like, oh, well, violating the Logan Act is a perfectly reasonable reason to, you know, investigate someone. And like the only time I had ever heard the Logan <laughs> Act um, in my 25 years of, you know, reporting or whatever in this town prior to that was, um, was, you know, completely in the domain of fever swamps and conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Washington Post, David Ignatius, you know, is treating it like it's, you know, oh, a normal thing that, you know, you would go after someone for when the reality was, is like, it's, it's a law that has never been enforced. And it's, you know, a complete joke. Mm -hmm. um, and there were so many episodes like that, where like the media had to just choose to ignore, like just glaring facts and problems um, and just proceed ahead with the reporting, like absolutely nothing was wrong here. Um you know, I mean, it was, you know, whatever you think about Trump, whether you think Trump was, you know, a bad president or irresponsible or this or that, fact is he did include with Russia and, you know, 90% um, of 99% of the reporting suggesting he did was based on, you know, at, at a minimum faulty premises and frequently based on the, you know, completely wrong facts. So they kind of avoid, so there's just, just a circus for years and they kind of avoid any kind of mea culpa because everyone's sort of in on it really except for a few people who are doing good journalism during this time and then it, it's columbia right the the columbia columbia Legal journalism Review. review yes right and um they decided to do some kind of well okay i don't really understand what it is i just know that like this they're doing some kind of can you explain what it is that they decided to do so columbia journalism review is sort of the in-house organ of of columbia journalism school um and columbia journalism school is the most prestigious you know academic journalism program in the country and their publication columbia journalism review 
does a lot of stuff involving media criticism and has long been considered kind of an unofficial sort of ombudsman for the entire like media industry. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, they, they sort of take what they have to say about what's going on in the media very seriously. So when Columbia Journalism Review publishes a 24,000 word, you know, blow by blow takedown saying that all of the Russia collusion coverage was absolute garbage, which is what they did. Um, it was, you know, a you know, significant thing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's far too little, far too late, um, considering the fallout from all of the stuff that happened, but you know, it still was pretty notable. And, and this guy girth, Jeff girth, who did the whole reporting is, you know, a very serious guy who did, you know, a hell of a job unpacking the story things on a, a story that was that complex. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically what happened. Okay. So I don't feel like, and, and look, I'm someone who actually kind of, even though I write for the Federalist SDU, um, I, I, I kind of avoid, uh, news media like, right. pretty consistently unless I sort of, you know, have to pay attention. As so Trump I'm not... would say many such cases. <laughs> so I, I'm not like swimming in this stuff, but I just don't feel like this is being discussed that much. Um, at least in corporate media and oh, it's not being discussed at all. Yeah. That's yeah. I didn't want to go that far. I, it, it seems impossible that this would not be, I mean, this is almost like a, a Pentagon papers level scandal in my mind, except the scandal is on the journalists, not the white house. Right. You know, and, I mean, and actually it's probably a bigger story than the Pentagon papers. even. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. And it's not, just being beaten to death in the like they're just completely ignored now i it's not like it's confusing it makes them look terrible but i i mean this is like huge like this is and it's it's... anyway so what what is like the people who are reporting on this like you like what is the what does all this mean well like i said i'm very glad girth did this piece um and it's made it a lot harder for, um, I'd say, people in sort of the corporate journalism world or whatever sort of ignore the fact that they, they got stuff wrong. Having said that, like I said, it's far too little, far too late. Um, you know, um, Girth got Bob Woodward on record saying that all the Russiagate coverage was blown out of proportion and that got some, you know, attention. But, but by and large, um, everyone has completely circled the wagons um, and... Um, you know, have, you know, basically refused to acknowledge that this piece exists and you, you have, you this piece as good as it is, I and mean, there'll be something you can point to and sort of explain things to people, but it's not going to force any sort of reckoning that needs to happen in sort of the media industry at all. Um, and that's kind of what my column was about. I was just like, so frustrated that like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. This piece is out there, but you know, Hey guys, let's like, look at what this means. I mean, the media have figured out on so many issues in recent years, basically, that if they were all wrong together, there's going to be no accountability and they don't have to worry about that. Um, mm. You know, you saw this, you know, again, you know, when it came to COVID or Black Lives Matter protests or you know, whatever it was, um, the media were all like 100%, not just like wrong together, but they were also using their, you know, quote unquote, consensus of circling the wagons and, you know, bolstering of, of the the voices that that they themselves um, thought were the, the, the they themselves thought were worth amplifying in the scientific community, um, to the point where their press started you know 
In addition to being wrong about everything, this all happens at the same time the press starts routinely exercising its power to pressure people to be censored and other things like that. Mm. Um, and as a result of all this, you're starting to see like, you know, I mean, I, I think there was a survey that came out recently that showed that um, um, citizens trust in their, their media um, um, and of the 46 countries they surveyed, the USA was like far and away the lowest. <laughs> um, and like there are dramatic consequences to the media doing this. I mean, yeah. and, and it's, you know, on one hand, it's a sort of rear guard action for them to preserve their, you know, failing business models. And, you know, at a time when they're being challenged by, you know, the internet and whatever else is going on out there that, you know, they would all circle the wagons and enforce these sort of like, uh, um, sort of assert that they have some sort of institutional clout that they can all throw around to, you know, affect things, um, um, you know, and sort of shape news coverage the way that they want it. Um, but, you know, when you think about what we've, what's happened in the past couple of years, um, one of the interesting things that Gerth points out in the piece, and he just sort of like notes in passing that, um, the event that catalyzed all of the Russiagate coverage was on January 6th, 2017, um, James Comey decided to brief Trump and Obama together at the White House on the contents of the dossier. Um, <laughs> this meeting was a complete and total setup. Uh, obviously, the dossier is garbage. It had no business being like given official credibility by the head of the FBI and, and you know, the, you know, head of the CIA and Obama's, you know, director of national intelligence and whoever else was there. But the whole point of the meeting was so that they could leak the fact of this meeting to CNN, which then published the first story about the dossier. And that was the beginning of the end for any sort of, you know, um, you know, restraint in terms of, you know, Russiagate coverage. Um, anyway, um, Gerth notes that the fact that that meeting took place on January 6th, four years to the day of the January 6th riot, you know, he doesn't exactly like, he says this you know, interesting coincidence, basically, it doesn't exactly like make the full um, implications of this, you know, obvious, which is, you know, um, which and I think it's fair to say, those two events are not unrelated at all. I mean, if you're wondering why yeah. people are riding at the Capitol on you know, January 6th, 2021, and they don't trust the election results and all this other stuff well you know what it has something to do with the entire media establishment and the entire like washington permanent washington you know deep state whatever establishment collectively coming together to gaslight half the american population repeatedly for four years that trump is an illegitimate president and oh by the way the previous election was bs mm -hmm. um you know and so shock and surprise when we have a super close election and trump starts raising doubts about it you know four years later the media can't summon the institutional trust that the media is supposed to have in situations like this to like rein people in and stop, you know, events from like January, stop events from January 6th, like happening. I mean, you know, and, and I won't even go into the fact that they were, you know, throwing gasoline on the fire of, of protests, you know, all through 2020 when it, you know, it served their political advantage. Right. Um, you know, they, they had no problem with, you know, stoking violence then. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few hundred people storm into the Capitol and it's like, well, I never. You know, how dare they? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not excusing anyone that, you know, participated in the riot that day, but, you know, it's, it was an inevitable consequence. Uh, well, I shouldn't say inevitable, but it was definitely a consequence of uh, a very distrustful media environment and, in, you know, that was created by the media acting very obviously irresponsibly and in a very partisan fashion. Like, they very much, con they contributed as much to that happening as just about anyone else. 
And I think it's really interesting because nothing, really nothing that you've said, everything that you've said is incredibly political in this environment, but really nothing you've said is partisan. Like this is pretty much just, you know, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's some room for debate on some details, but really this is what happened. And I, I didn't, I, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Yeah. I didn't like Trump. I still don't like Trump in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I, you know, like some of the things he did as president. I mean, he was the first president and got us through. He's the first president since Jimmy Carter that managed not to bomb an all new foreign country. I mean, you know, there are certain things I could say, you know, in Trump's favor, but I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I had serious doubts about him. And, you know, less than a month into his tenure as president, I find myself, you know, as a journalist, you know, looking around going, what the hell is going on right now? I mean, has everyone in this town lost their damn mind? I mean, the facts are clear. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I have always had problems with liberal media bias and other things like that, but I never in a million years thought what they would everyone would so collectively take leave of their senses they would completely def depart from factual narratives altogether um specifically for political advantage which is exactly what they did well and it is like conrad black has made the point that he really feels like all of these things start with nixon and i'm no fan of nixon either nixon was like in many ways very left-leaning in pretty much almost every way from a policy perspective, like as a, you know, in his personal life, whatever, he's, he's much more conservative, but like you look at the decade that precedes him and the fact that it's his regime that has the scandal, you know, the scandal that, that all journalists, it's the myth-making scandal, you know, it's Woodward and Bernstein and how the Washington post is, you know, the slayer of presidents and all this stuff. And like, it's it's been a problem for a long time. It's just it's just that I don't think like it just keeps getting wackier. I mean, at least the stuff that like Woodward and Bernstein reported on actually happened, you know, like and that's real. But it doesn't seem like it. It always seems like I mean, George W. Bush was called Hitler, you know, I right. mean, the, every every cycle it's anti-Republican, blah, blah, blah. But then Trump who's who's very new like it's all it's all very different with him and he's not like you said i mean you didn't vote for him a lot of people were really um really skeptical right and then it just sort of like i feel like the the seeds that had been sown along you know for decades just kind of erupt in just a maelstrom of nonsense um and, yeah but oh, so what so what does so is columbia gonna is this gonna like impact their journalism school no no this is just another article published in their thing so i don't think it's gonna really like matter all that much at the end at the end of the day that they they did this sort of thing um, so this isn't going to lead to because like journalism school is i mean what what actually happens in journalism school like are they taught how to be I don't feel like it's that complicated to learn how to be a <laughs> speaking journalist. Speaking right? as a journalist, speaking as someone who has a journalism degree, you're, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, is journalism as an academic profession, I mean, as an academic pursuit, um, almost didn't really exist until like the mid '70s. Basically, I mean, it, it basically what happens is Watergate happens, and then yeah. by the mid '70s, like you know, journalism programs are 
sprouting up like you know there was only a handful prior to that and now all of a sudden because journalism's become this sort of like romantic crusading profession um and it's seen as you know prestigious in some ways um all of a sudden you know you they start pop journalism programs start popping up like toadstools all over the country in various schools and stuff like that um so um yeah no um uh journalism is really when you get right down to it it's much more a trade than a sort of academic field of study so it, it really you know matters more of a sort of a learn by doing thing the problem is is that the whole notion of journalism being sort of a a blue collar trade as it as it was not that you know long ago you know 30 years ago it wasn't uncommon to go into a major newsroom and you know find plenty of reporters who've never been to college um you know these days it's just an entirely different thing i mean it's just become incredibly woke you know um there's a girl named Batya Unger Sargon. Um, well, and that doesn't seem like an accident, right? So, like, if it's becoming a quote-unquote academic profession in the '70s, especially right. at places like Columbia, right, which is the beating heart of like you know Frankfurt so, School and all this stuff. So, um, this woman Batger Unger Sargon wrote a book that came out I want to say last year called uh, "Bad News." It's terrific. I wrote a long review of it for. Um, um, oh my gosh, why am I totally blanking on the name of this place? I feel horrible. Uh, it's a great, great publication, and I really enjoy writing there, and I'm just getting old. I don't <laughs> remember the name of the place. Um, um, anyway, um, I wrote a long review of it. Um, and um, What's the name of the book? Uh, it's called Bad News. Um, sorry, you can, that, oh, that's, I me was... typing, that's me typing to look up. Sorry, Law and Liberty is the name of the publication. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was anyway, I wrote a long review. But anyway, basically, um, um, uh, the book is about this, which is about how um, the real problems in American journalism aren't really about politics so much as they are about class. And mm -hmm. um, this is entirely true. Like, well, the media always had sort of a liberal tilt. I mean, it was kind of a liberal tilt and because it was about the sort of lower and working serving news like broad back when publications really served truly broad audiences right they had kind of a natural bias toward the the lower classes and the working class people um you know in terms of um you know who was buying newspapers and things like that um you know and and more than that just also you know concentrated wealth and power or whatever you know sort of a you know aligned against the masses and in the last you know however many decades it's the you know it used to be a substantial amount of sort of the the wealth in this country was you know very you know at, at the minimum small c conservative and to a large extent big c conservative even you know in terms of political ideology and however in latin and however in the sort of post 1960s or whatever that's all been changing all of the all of the sort of um influence and money and everything has a very increasingly left-wing ideology yeah um and to the point where it was no longer sustainable for the media to pretend that a lot of their sort of their less objective things that they were doing when the political bias came out you know they could always say it was really about you know um um you know class issues but what's happened is is because now the liberals are all the wealthy powerful people in this country they've sort of swapped race for class um mm, and so yeah. You have a situation here now where like um you have she points out like the new york times magazine put out an issue a few years ago that had angela davis on the cover of the magazine and on the back page was a full page ad for cartier 
I mean, like <laughs> they don't even see the contradiction between those things, but like that's that's what it is. And so the American journalism is a swap their their obsessions over class issues, which at the very least cut across certain ideological lines and are somewhat uniting in this country mm-hmm. um, to things that are explicitly either focused on race or, you know, other explicitly ideological woke issues. Um, and that's really been accounting for a lot of sort of the destruction of sort of what's going on. Um, now there is a separate issue, which you were kind of getting at in a sort of a long thing here, which is that it is also true that once upon a time, the uh, media used to be much more inherently distrustful of power. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and much more interested in, in what government might be doing that was wrong. Um, but now again, now that the ranks of law enforcement agencies at the top and stuff are dominated by ostensible liberals and things like that, all of a sudden, the same media that screamed about abuses by the FBI and CIA for decades has become completely unquestioning when they tell them, when, when they get leaks from those same people saying the president of the United States is a Russian spy, even though that story, you know, demands you know being vetted unbelievably thoroughly at every step of the way now they just trust these people because they're their you know ideological fellow travelers um and you know the reality is is that this is really much more an issue of sort of the deep state and permanent washington than it is about whether or not the person running the fbi you know shares your you know uh, votes for the same people as you do as a journalist um because they're all these they're all these sort of to be clear, I, sorry, I'm interrupting you. It's just that no, like, we, we keep using the word like deep state. And I think this this is one of these things where um, it's not, it sounds like some kind of, you know, crazy Alex Jonesy type no. word, but it's the, it's the truth. It's not, it's not right. like there's some like this, like Darth Vader or something that's no. pulling all the strings. It's that a lot of the people that have, tons of power like James Comey these people are not like running for public office they're they're part of an edifice that lasts you know decades and most people don't even know who they are right i mean that's really what we mean it's like the 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 internal eternal permanent bureaucratic class or whatever that's that's in dc that's what we mean when we say deep state right yes um in fact before um um before um um the last couple of years when the media collectively decided that deep state was you know anyone using the phrase was some kind of you know quack or conspiracy Tin, tinfoil hours right um it was a sort of common political science term basically mm-hmm. referred to sort of the permanent institutional power like the state that can't be sort of the parts of the apparatus of the state that just can't be uprooted with yeah. elections and things like that um you know administrative state might be another word for it in some respects but i think you know deep state also sort of encompasses the aspects of you know the perm the national security apparatus and other things like that that you know is is sort of entrenched um but i'll just Anyway, along those lines, though, about this this notion of the deep state or whatever, I'll just give you an idea of like what we're talking about here in the context of um, Russiagate, and like this is part of the context here that's that's sort of been missing. And you were sort of getting at this earlier when you were going through all this stuff about how um, Conrad Black was talking about Watergate and other things like that. So, mm-hmm. one of the big stories I did last year was about this guy named Stefan Halper, and Stefan Halper was a professor at Cambridge, and he was also an FBI informant. Um, and, uh, he was, uh, one of the informants for the FBI that, um, he was 
mind you, he was being paid lots of money by the FBI in six figures periodically or whatever to provide information for them. Um, and one of, and he was the, one of the guys that sort of, you know, fingered Carter page, who was, you know, one of the Trump aides that was allegedly mixed up in Russia. And turns mm -hmm. out, you know, this was all, frankly, they just violated the hell out of Carter page's rights and other things just based on a bunch of dodgy suspicions. But anyway, supposedly Stefan Helper was the, one of the FBI informants that gave them information on Carter page, possibly being, you know, a Russian, you know, asset or whatever. Um, and so I did a piece last year looking into Stefan Helper. And it turns out this guy, Stefan Halper, who's a professor at Cambridge, has been lying on his resume for like, as near as I can tell, like 50 years about really significant things. He claims he was like vice president of his class at Stanford in the late 60s. He wasn't. He claims he was a Fulbright scholar. He wasn't. He claims that he got a degree from Oxford in the early 1970s, and uh, there's no record of a thesis uh, uh, there um, from him. Um, he claimed that he worked in the same office uh um in the nixon administration um that they ran the plumbers operation out of that was responsible for watergate which mm -hmm. wasn't true he did work in the nixon administration but he didn't work there he worked in an unrelated drug who worked at a, a drug program you know in a different building um he then claimed that he spent the ford administration uh as uh, an advisor to Ford's chiefs of staff, um, which, by the way, Ford, even though it was a brief presidency, his chiefs of staff were in success, were Alexander Haig, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld. So it would have been like really significant if he'd had a position of power like that in the Ford administration. No, nope, it turns out yeah. that he was only a press aide for like a couple of months at the very end of the Ford administration. Um, so he was lying about that. Um, I mean, you know, on and on and on. I mean, the guys just, you know, complete Fugazi. I mean, just lying on his resume and here he is an FBI informant. Like, does anyone in the FBI look at this guy or whatever? Now he <laughs> did go on to eventually become a, a Cambridge professor and some other things like that. But what is true about Stefan Halper is that he married the daughter of Ray Klein. Now, uh, for those of you that don't know who aren't, you know, total JFK conspiracy theorists, um, Ray Klein was the director of operations of the CIA in the early 1960s. And, and I think even in the fifties, he started out at the OSS, the precursor to the CIA in world war two. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was the, he was the director of operations of the CIA during the Bay of pigs. Ray Klein was the guy that waltzed into the oval office to inform, uh, John F. Kennedy that, uh, the Russians were putting missiles in Cuba. Mm. Um, like, you know, he was up to his eyeballs and coups and all this other stuff. And he's a big part of, uh, um, uh, JFK assassination lore because, um, he was the CIA station chief, um, 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 at one of, um, he was the local CIA station chief at one of Lee Harvey Oswald's overseas postings when he was in the Marine Corps. Um, so, um, that's who Stefan Helper's father-in-law was, and now he eventually divorced his daughter um, in the 80s sometime. But um, that was not before um, Ray Klein basically got Stefan Helper a job on the um, Bush and Reagan administration, uh, in the, the Bush and Reagan campaign, sorry, in the late 1970s. And I don't know if you remember this, but um, there was a big scandal because what happened was at some point um, the briefing book that Jimmy Carter was using to prepare for the presidential debates was stolen and it found its way to the Reagan campaign. And in the early 1980s, uh, the New York Times fingered helper as being, you know, one of the, the ringleaders of that whole operation. Um, and later on during the Iran Contra thing, both Ray Klein was involved in Iran Contra and um, tangentially and, and, uh, um, um, uh, Stefan Halper had, despite having any, no previous financial experience 
after he lost his job at the State Department for being involved in the briefing book, stealing the briefing book controversy, he was made head of a bank in Washington, D.C. that later they funneled a huge amount of money that was used in Iran-Contra through that particular bank. And he uh, was the uh, head of Oliver North's legal defense fund, you know, yada, yada, yada. In the early 1990s, uh, Stefan Halper is arrested for possessing crack cocaine. Um, and 10 years later, somehow he ends up as a professor at Cambridge. <laughs> now, when I talk about the deep state, I'm telling you that the same guy and his father-in-law were involved in the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. <laughs> Probably about three coups in, in, three coups in, in Cuba uh, in the 1950s. Um, this, you know, presidential scandal, stealing, uh, stealing a briefing book out of the White House. Mm -hmm. um, they, he lied about being involved in Watergate, but that was the implication, of course, when he said he worked in that office. Um, and we know that he was involved in Iran-Contra before um, Stefan Halper got involved in, um, uh, in Russiagate. And, and that's just, you know, a, a, a father-in-law and his son-in-law, you know, in this town. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I mean. If this you is wanna... not a conspiracy theory. This is fact. No. These are just all facts. And I'm like, you know, again, you know, you can argue how sinister their behavior was and yeah. given, you know, incident and a lot of these things, but just, you know, the succession of facts between, you know, two people that are closely connected there. I mean, it's just absolutely staggering. The same people be the center of all that. But I mean, yeah. the reality is, it's like, that's what institutional power in, you know, you know, late stage America looks like. Um, yeah. And so you're not crazy to think that they're kind of out to get you in, in some regards. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and I think we've gone longer than you actually said you had time for. There's well, I got carried away. There's you well, that's that's great. Um I uh yeah, I I it's it's not impinging on my time, but I just want to make sure that you're you're not I mean, I could just have you back next week or something, because there's just tons here to to talk about. But I mean, at the end of the day, like it's a big deal that Colombia is essentially acknowledging that this was a total fiasco, but yes. like, it's not really going to no. do anything. I mean, if you just think about like, look what's happened post Russia gate. I mean, like they turn on a dime to, you know, um, completely downplay and or ignore Joe Biden's own corruption in, you know, you know, Ukraine and, uh, um, and, uh, um, China, you know, via his son. I mean, it's so journalism has become so nakedly about influencing and protecting um, and or undermining uh, the political power that that they they want. Yeah. Um, and that's really what's going on. I mean, they, and the crazy thing about it is they live in such a delusional realm and it is so ideologically homogenous that they just don't see what they're doing as, you know unethical or wrong i mean they just simply see it as a matter of you know this is the right thing to do because this is yeah. you know these other people are bad i mean that's basically how they view it well it's it's really paul gottfried is one of my favorite uh i guess he's a historian but he he's he always deals with like really deep philosophical stuff too while molly's writing his histories but he wrote a, a small book a few years back called the uh, anti-fascism and it's really kind of trying to explain Antifa, like he's just detailing Antifa. Right. And I think often, you know, I mean, the American like right wing media has problems too, but like, you know, all, all media does, but there's, there's this tendency to 
uh, attribute like really high philosophical ideas to some of these people, like, um, like Marxism and stuff like that. And he's like, truthfully, these people aren't very ideological. Uh, like when they say fascist, they kind of just mean whoever they don't want to be in power at the moment. And that's kind of what some of this stuff looks like. It's just like, well, that's the enemy. What do we do about it? And it's, it seems like it's just, it's just an echo chamber where people are just kind of agreeing. We're all going to go out for this guy and we're all going to go out for that guy. And I, I mean, yeah, there's some critical theory stuff and there's a lot of left-wing ideas that are driving some of these things, but it, it really is kind of a, a it seems to me anyway, <laughs> it's kind of a bunch of people with too much power and there's no way to really hold them accountable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that was, that was just the point I was trying to make. No, it's exactly right. It's, it's kind of, um, concentrated power meets a conspiracy of intuition you know um <laughs> i like i remember this vividly during the um the irs scandal in the obama years mm -hmm. um and it's a really good illustration of where the media's like sort of head is at because as soon as that scandal broke and mind you what happened was the irs held a press conference saying we screwed up we mm -hmm. unfairly targeted people. They admitted that they what they had done was wrong from the outset, which is key because there was a lot of trying to muddy the waters after this, including the president of the United States denying that there was any corruption there. Mm -hmm. But what happened was is the media immediately seized on the IRS admitting, you know, full wrongdoing here. And all of the coverage was focused on one thing, which was can we prove the White House was involved in this? And if the White House wasn't involved in this, well then it's not a scandal. Right. Right. And I, the whole thing drove me insane because you know what? It would be a lot easier to deal with this if, you know, there was some guy at the top here that was, you know, twirling his mustache and, you know, orchestrating what was going on. The reality, what's happening is it's actually much, much scarier. Like Obama didn't have to tell the bureau, the liberal bureaucrats, of the IRS to, you know, go after his political enemies. He doesn't did have it. to do that. They did it on their own. They just did it in lockstep, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that kind of problem is much harder to like root out and deal with than, you know, sort of, you know, this, you know, idea of Nixon plotting in the White House to go after his enemies, which has, you know, been always been the, the narrative of Watergate, which, you know, it makes it real simple to, you know, make, you know, to make Nixon out to be a villain. And the reality is the story is, of course, much, much more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, probably some, and there's a lot of truth about Watergate being the, the center of, of, you know, our, you know, reshaping our understanding of, you know, political power and scandals in this country, but just frequently not in the way that people think, because, you know, it's also a story about a lot of, you know, entrenched power and, you know, you know, petty bureaucrats, you know, leveraging, you know, upending democracy, essentially, if, if it means that, you know, um, they get, to, they get their way. I mean, you know, when Nixon was elected in 1972, it was, you know, the most, dramatic landslide of any president in you know history and yet somehow the will of the people is like completely overturned you know on a you know as they say a third rate burglary or whatever and there's a lot that happened to go from point a to point b there that isn't just about nixon being a villain um and well and it's, it's strange it's a lot more troubling it this is this is what's strange to me too because look it's not like nixon didn't do stuff that was wrong but like if you look at especially okay so the post comes out you know, during Trump's uh, 
presidency. And it's, it's like an okay film, but it's all about the Pentagon papers. Right. And if you look at the scandals that should have been associated with JFK and Johnson, and then essentially wind up being problems during Nixon's, you know, tenure in office, to me, it's really bizarre that, that Watergate winds up being the thing that people point to in the mythology of all of this, instead of like, man, that was a rough decade for like the American presidency. No, 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 no. It's all about Nixon. <laughs> and like, I just don't get it. Like it's, I mean, I guess intellectually, I, I understand what is happening, but it's just strange to me that people can look at these things and be like, which is the bigger problem is, is what Nixon actually did and the complications surrounding that and his, the people he has in place and all that stuff. Is that more disturbing than the Pentagon papers and like the stuff that Johnson and JFK did Bay of pigs, all of these things. But like right. it, it, to me, it's like no contest, right. but it's, it's just not the mythology is Nixon. The phrase worse than Watergate gets thrown out all the time. And it's yeah. hilarious to me because literally every political scandal is worse than Watergate. Yeah. Like. I mean, there were several scandals in the Obama administration that had like actual body counts. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, you're not wrong. And yeah. You've got like what border officers that are dying and things like that. I mean, it, it's, it's bizarre. Every presidency has problems. Every presidency has scandals but the idea that watergate is the benchmark it's just it's looking the further removed we are from it it keeps looking more and more ludicrous you know anyway okay well i i've definitely taken you more than your allotted time so um i want to have you back uh soon to to maybe break down some some more of this stuff if anything else comes out especially but uh do you have any recommendations, um, like stuff you've been watching? Or I always ask you for music recommendations because uh, the Hemingways are known for their their massive <laughs> LP collection and, and uh, taste in music. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, what did I? Sorry. Um, I recently enjoyed. Uh, no, and for on television, I recently enjoyed The Offer, which is the series about the making of The Godfather. I keep meaning to binge that, and I just haven't started it yet. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that a, a fair bit. Um, and uh, that's Miles I mean, Teller, right? Yeah, of Top Gun although, Maverick fame. Yes, although I think it was supposed to be. Um, I just read recently it was supposed to be. Um, uh, Army Hammer was originally cast in that, and then he got Me Too hmm. or whatever um oh when, <laughs> that's rough anyway but yeah no i actually enjoyed that a fair bit um it was pretty good and I'm, oh, gosh i can't even think of like what else i've been watching um but um yeah i don't know and the music um i don't know there's a bunch of things i could say but um i'm gonna there's a band called los colones out of nashville and they're mm -hmm. like virtually unknown and when i ordered their record off their website I remember getting the receipt. It was like receipt, and like it was literally like order number twenty-seven or something. Um, and I can't figure out why these guys aren't bigger. If you like like retro eighty stuff and uh, like think like I don't know Dire Straits or something, um, these guys are just the best. Um, and uh, I don't know one of these days I'm gonna make a trip to Nashville just to see them. But my favorite album of theirs is called The Wave. But their recent record's really good too, and that's um, called The New World. 
Yeah, you recommended this to me recently, and I was listening to it yesterday, and it is it is really good. Um, but yeah, you do. I I had my wife listen to it, and she's like, "I'm just not into '80s the way you are." <laughs> <laughs> it is very '80s, but like it's like '80s. It's like that polished '80s rock sound, like sort of mm. you know late '80s Eric Clapton, Dire Straits. Um, um, yeah, you know maybe a smidge of Don Henley, that kind of thing. Yeah, which actually I really like a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I do too. But okay, that's not the most hip music recommendation, but it's the one I'm throwing out there. Well, I'm I'm, I'm much more you know uh, indie rock hip than that. I'm sorry, just have, <laughs> just have to take my word for it. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Mark. This has been great. Um, yeah. So, yep. uh, oh, I was going to ask you: Do you recommend people read? bad news is is that a pretty good book oh that's a fantastic book if you want to understand okay. what's going on in the media it's one of the best things that uh, i can uh, sort of recommend so there, there are actually two really great media criticism books and put out in the last few years one was bad news by bacha under sargon um and i wrote a long review of that a law and liberty um if you want to read that i um We'll give you a better idea what the book's about. But also um Matt Taibbi actually wrote a book I don't know, say like three or four years ago called Hate Incorporated. Um about like sort of all the problems of the you know corporate media as it were. Um and what's interesting is he's you know Taibi's a big leftist or yeah, I was gonna say perspective. Taibi's not a conservative. So if you no, not really think that we're just partisan hacks and all this like uh, go look at his twitter <laughs> right exactly um and he he identifies a lot of the stuff in fact it was kind of interesting to me because um tybee zeroes in on a lot of stuff that noam chomsky was, was saying about the media in, in the 1980s and, and i always just sort of reflexively dismissed noam chomsky because, but he's actually pretty good on a lot of stuff <laughs> well i don't know he, he's, he's got a pretty spotty track record in foreign policy and a lot of other things but um, all, all the stuff that he was warning about sort of, you know, corporate influence media in the 1980s and stuff, he was way ahead of his time. And, yeah. and I was sort of shocked to go back and, and revisit that. Um, there are libertarians and, that actually recommend some of his books specifically, I think for, yeah. for some of these reasons. Yeah. So, and he's, he's saying anyway, type, but the point is that's just where Tybee's coming from. And you know, he talks about some mm -hmm. of that stuff, but you know, he's also been through the ringer in terms of the corporate media and working for Rolling Stone and other things like that. So he's got a lot of like insights and, and frankly, you know, the problems of the media, you know, here apply to both, you know, right and left to some degree. It just happens that the you know, left dominates the media industry, but, the, but, but hate incorporated and bad news are probably the best two books in the media forever. What, what was the second one? Uh, bad news and hate incorporated. Hate incorporated. Hate. Incorporated. Oh, hate incorporated. Okay. Yeah. That's hate incorporated is Taibbi's book and bad news. Is right. Okay. Sargons. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. All right. Well, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye, Mark. <laughs>